0: Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode arguing against the evidence. Now, what do I mean by arguing against the evidence? Typically, wouldn't we always want to argue? with the evidence, that would certainly lead us to a more reasonable and more persuasive argument under most circumstances. For example, let's say I'm representing somebody in a case where a pivotal fact is whether the light was red or green at the time my client entered the intersection. And further, let us suppose that there are four witnesses as to whether the light was green or red at that time. Now, if all four of those witnesses say, the light was red and not green at the time my client entered the intersection, that is going to be a difficult thing to argue against, especially if my case depends upon the light being green at the time. So if I were to go in and argue against the evidence in such a case and say that the light was actually green in spite of the fact that all four witnesses to the event said it was red, that would be an obvious example of arguing against the evidence. That is an argument that it is very unlikely a jury would accept as being correct. But let's change those facts a little bit because arguing against the evidence is rarely that cut and dried and that obvious, which is why nobody tends to do it, at least not if they want to be taken seriously or or have any hope of persuading the jury that they are correct. Let's say that two of the four witnesses said the light was green and the other two said it was red. Now obviously the light was only green or red at the time. So two of the witnesses have to be mistaken. And if I am arguing the light was green, then I am going to argue as to why it is the two witnesses who said it was green should be believed, and the two witnesses who said it was red should not be believed. They were mistaken. They were not watching closely. They were too far away. They were not at a good angle to see the actual color of the light. And from the other side of the argument, the other party will do exactly the opposite. They will argue that the two witnesses who said it was red are the ones to be believed, and the two Who say it was green are the ones who must be mistaken perhaps the witnesses who said it was green were in a position not to be able to see it very clearly or perhaps they had some bias to say it was green some reason to testify untruthfully in the situation now in that case both sides are arguing against some evidence they're arguing for some evidence that supports their case but they have to argue against the evidence that does not support their case And I think we can all understand how that can be done in good faith. Obviously, one side or the other has to be correct, and yet we have to argue against the evidence that contradicts the position that we want to maintain. Let's change the facts again and say that only one witness says the light was green and the other three witnesses say the light was red. Well, once again, only one of the two positions can be correct. And if I want to maintain that the light was green, then I have to give reasons as to why my witness, the one witness who says it was green, is correct, and the other three witnesses were not correct, for whatever reason that may be. That is a more difficult argument to make, and yet it is possible that the three witnesses who said it was red may, under certain circumstances, be mistaken or be collaborating in order to give false testimony. It is possible that the light really was green, but it's more likely that everything else being equal, a jury is going to conclude that the three witnesses were probably correct, whereas the one witness who said it was green is not correct. Now let me take that exact same example and flip it. I want to maintain that the light was green. There are three witnesses who say the light was green and only one who says that the light was red. I'm feeling pretty comfortable about my case, but I still have to make the argument that the one witness who said the light was red is incorrect and the three who said the light was green are the ones to be believed. Everything is still on the up and up because the jury gets to hear the testimony Of all four witnesses, they get to hear the testimony, they get to hear the arguments, they get to make up their own mind as to which side should be believed, whether the light was red or the light was green. Now let's change the facts a little bit more. And let's say I have three witnesses who say the light is green, but then I discover before trial that there is a fourth witness who says the light was red. The other side in this imaginary lawsuit does not know about the existence of this one witness who says the light was red. I have discovered this witness through my own independent investigation. Well, if I am a prosecuting attorney, I am bound under the law to disclose this to the other side. This is what we would call Brady material. Brady material is evidence that the prosecutor has which would tend to show that the defendant is not guilty. It is exculpatory evidence and if the prosecutor ends up finding exculpatory evidence they are obligated under the law to provide that to the other side, and certainly in most situations the prosecutor does just that. There are, however, some unfortunate instances where prosecutors do not disclose Brady material to the other side, because the prosecutor knows it will hurt the prosecutor's chance of gaining a conviction. In such situations, where a prosecutor does not disclose Brady material and a defendant is convicted, if it should happen that subsequent to the conviction, it comes to light that the prosecutor did not disclose exculpatory material in the prosecutor's possession, that conviction can be reversed and even dismissed based upon prosecutorial misconduct. So let's return to my example of the four witnesses. The one who says the light was red, the three who say the light was green, I have discovered through my own investigation the one witness who says the light was red and I have not disclosed it to the other side. And let's say that for whatever reason, this one witness who says the light was red could possibly tend to be more believable than the other three witnesses who said the light was green. But I sit on this evidence and I do not disclose it to the other side with the result that the jury never hears about the one witness who said the light was red, but only hears about the three witnesses who said the light was green. As far as the jury is concerned, I have a rock solid case there are only three witnesses, at least as far as the jury knows, that say the light was green and they are all unanimous in what they say. The problem is that I know that there's evidence that contradicts it, but the jury doesn't. And I have taken steps in order to prevent the jury from ever finding out about the one witness who says the light was red. And therefore, the jury also does not get to know why it is that this one witness who said the light was red might be more believable than the three witnesses who said the light was green." If I were to then stand up in closing argument and say there are only three witnesses and all of them say the light was green, the witnesses are all agreed on this fact and therefore the jury should find that the light was green, as far as the jury knows, I'm not arguing against the evidence. I'm the only one who knows that I'm arguing against the evidence and I have taken the unethical step of hiding the evidence that contradicts my theory and keeping it from the knowledge of the jury. Okay, why have I gone into this long series of hypotheticals about the light being green and the light being red and the number of witnesses who say the light was green and the number of witnesses who say the light was red and then hiding the evidence of the one witness who said the light was red? Well, the reason why is because a listener to the Radio Free Mormon program named Steve sent me an email regarding an article that was written in 1960 for the church magazine, The New Improvement Era, by none other than Joseph Fielding Smith. And as many of you may be suspecting, this has to do with the 1832 account of the First Vision. I devoted an entire episode to this subject. I believe it was episode number three, Hiding Church History, and I have touched on these facts several times since then. The thumbnail version is this. There are four accounts known of the First Vision, which Joseph Smith either authored or spoke, and it was written down by a scribe. Those are the 1832 account, the 1835 account, the 1838 account, and the 1842 account. In the last three of those accounts, including the 1838 account, which became the official version and is published in the Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith recounts seeing two beings in his first vision, the father and the son. But in the 1832 account, the earliest of the four accounts, and the only one written in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, Joseph Smith reports seeing only one being, and that being was the Son of God, i.e. Jesus Christ, which is made clear from the context. Now, as listeners to this program know, the 1832 account was not generally known among members of the church. In fact, it was completely unknown among members of the church up until 1965. And once again going with a thumbnail sketch, the reason why is because Joseph Fielding Smith in the 1930s when he was not only an apostle but also the church historian happened upon the 1832 account of the first vision. He had it cut out of letter book one in which it was contained. He took those pages and stored them in his safe, his locked safe in his office and he hid the 1832 account there. It is obvious that Joseph Fielding Smith Knew the contents of the 1832 account vision. He knew that it mentioned Joseph Smith seeing only one being in that vision, and that is almost certainly why it is that he took steps to have it removed from the letter book in which it was contained and hid it in his safe. We also know that Joseph Fielding Smith would not allow other people to see the 1832 account of the first vision, even if those other people were members of the leadership of the church, even in the presidency of the 70. And he required such people to get authorization from leadership above Joseph Fielding Smith, which would likely be the first presidency, in order for him to allow such people to read the account of the first vision. And even then, it was only under the promise and the blood oath, so to speak, that the person reading it not be allowed to make a copy and be forsworn against ever mentioning the contents of it to anybody else. That is what happened with Levi Edgar Young. The Member of the Presidency of the Seventy, which once again is detailed in episode number three, Hiding Church History, and which itself is based upon the excellent scholarship done by Stan Larson as published in a 2014 dialogue article. It was not until 1963 and 1964 that knowledge of the existence of this account of the first vision was leaked to the public, and in 1965, Joseph Fielding Smith or somebody else at his direction, under mounting pressure, had the pages Taped once again back into the letter book from which it was cut three decades before, and then it was brought to the attention of Paul Chessman, a graduate student at BYU who was writing a master's thesis at the time for inclusion in his master's thesis. It is against this backdrop that Joseph Fielding Smith wrote an article in 1960. Remember, as of 1960, the 1832 account is in his safe. He knows it's in his safe. He knows it is protected against public dissemination, and very few people other than himself know the contents of that document. It is against this backdrop that Joseph Fielding Smith writes an article in which he argues for the truthfulness of the first vision, the historicity of the first vision, the fact that the first vision really happened based upon the official version, the 1838 account of the first vision, which says that Joseph Smith saw two beings and completely omitting the fact that Joseph Fielding Smith is completely aware of the 1832 account which mentions Joseph Smith seeing only one being. Now the thing that makes this so interesting is that Joseph Fielding Smith's entire argument hinges upon the fact that Joseph Smith reported seeing two beings. His argument is that basically all of Christianity at the time believed in the Trinity and therefore Joseph Smith would have reported seeing only one being if he were making it up. He would have made it up in accordance with the common belief among Christians at the time, i.e. the Trinity, i.e. only one being would show up and two beings would never show up because that would obviously contradict the prevalent notion of the Trinity. The problem, of course, is that Joseph Ealing Smith is keeping information from his audience. He is hiding information from the jury. He knows about somebody who said that the light was red. He's only gonna talk about the three people who said the light was green. And in fact, in this case, we're talking about not four different witnesses, we're talking about one and the same witness giving four different reports of whether the light was red or the light was green, of whether there were two beings who appeared in the vision or only one being who appeared in the vision. And under these circumstances, the fact that the 1832 account is the earliest known version and the only one written in Joseph Smith's own handwriting would tend to indicate that that version more closely approximates the truth of what Joseph Smith claimed he saw rather than subsequent versions in which he says he saw two beings instead of one. Let's go to that article now. This article comes from the February 1960 Improvement Era, pages 80 through 81. Once again, this article was brought to my attention by a listener to the program named Stephen White. And yes, I did make sure I had permission from him to use his full name before including it here. The article is written by Joseph Fielding Smith, and is titled, What Evidences Do We Have to Substantiate the First Vision of Joseph Smith? Can we prove that his story is true and that he was not deceived or a deceiver? Here's what Joseph Fielding Smith writes in 1960. It is well known that the truth or falsity of a story lies mainly in the details. There are some details connected with the vision given to Joseph Smith the prophet that may appear to many as insignificant and by many members of the church are overlooked yet they are of vital and of overwhelming importance. Well, what could these details be, Joseph Fielding Smith, he tells us? We are all aware of the fact that in the year 1820, the Nicene Creed held almost universal sway throughout the Christian world, Catholic and Protestant alike. Christian ministers, scholars, and professors through the centuries had accepted this creed in the main as being true. Today, the religious world ridicules the idea of an anthropomorphic God, whether they accept this creed or not, and look upon God as an invisible essence or power in the universe. Many, if not all, declare that he is without passions, is immaterial, and that the Father and the Son are merely expressions of one God or supreme governing influence of power. It was the common belief In the days of the prophet Joseph Smith, this is Joseph Fielding Smith writing, it was the common belief in the days of the prophet Joseph Smith that Christ was a manifestation of God in the flesh, but that after his resurrection, he shed his body and was again absorbed into the universal essence, power, or immaterial spirit that fills the universe. Now here I think that Joseph Fielding Smith is overstating his case. There were certainly other people who believed Differently at the time of Joseph Smith than the way it is presented here in the article. However, it is important for Joseph Fielding Smith to lay the groundwork that basically everybody and their dog believed in the Trinity at the time of Joseph Smith in order to lay the groundwork for what follows in the rest of his argument. An argument that, by the way, will be based upon hiding and continuing to hide and not address. The actual 1832 account of the first vision that Joseph Fielding Smith knows good and well is residing safely and unknown in his own safe, even as he writes this. The next section is Joseph Smith exposed erroneous Godhead doctrine. The article goes on. It is unreasonable to think that Joseph Smith, at the age of 14 years, could have found the error of this doctrine, i.e. the Trinity, the error of this doctrine which he had been religiously taught and come out in contradiction to it if he were telling an untruth. See, there it is. Joseph Smith would not have contradicted the Trinity if he were telling an untruth, or in other words, a false story about the first vision. He goes on. The most natural thing would have been for him to say when returning from the grove that he had seen an angel. Moreover, he would have been most unlikely to have declared that the messenger had told him that all of the religious teachings and teachers were in error, of the divine truth. Now, once again, Joseph Fielding Smith has in his possession the 1832 account of the First Vision, which contradicts subsequent accounts on this matter. In the 1832 account, Joseph Smith writes that he has already figured out through his study of the Bible that the various sects of Christianity are all in a state of apostasy, and he realizes this before he goes to the grove to pray. This is in stark contrast, and some might say even contradiction to the 1838 account of the First Vision, the official account, that Joseph Smith doesn't know that all of Christianity is in a state. of of apostasy before he goes to pray and only comes to that conclusion when God himself tells him that in response to his prayer, once again going back to that part of the article. Moreover, he would have been most unlikely to have declared that the messenger had told him that all of the religious teachings and teachers were in error of the divine truth. Presumably, he would have said that the messenger told him to join one of the contending religious sects, possibly that if he would wait, the Lord would call upon him to start a religion. Never in the world, and this is the crux of the argument by Joseph Fielding Smith, never in the world would he have declared that two glorious personages had appeared to him and had told him not to join any of the existing creeds and churches. He is making this argument even while he knows that the 1832 account is stowed away in his safe which says not that two glorious personages appear to Joseph Smith, but that only one personage appeared to Joseph Smith. And in fact, in that 1832 account, there is no mention about Joseph Smith not joining any of the churches. It is simply an account of how Joseph Smith receives a personal forgiveness for his sins. Now, once again, Joseph Fielding Smith knows this evidence is there. He's keeping it from his audience, and it is based upon the fact that his audience does not know the existence of, of the evidence that Joseph Fielding Smith himself knows about that he makes this startling argument. Once again, quote, never in the world would he have declared that two glorious personages had appeared to him and had told him not to join any of the existing creeds and churches. He goes on, without question, this was the furthest thing from his mind when he went into the grove, and that was his expression afterwards well, at least in accounts other than the 1832 account that only Joseph Fielding Smith knows about, he would not have dared to come from that interview declaring that all of the creeds and churches were wrong. Young as he was, he had wisdom enough to know that such a thought would have been fatal and would have brought only condemnation upon his head. Well, it is an open question as to what Joseph Smith actually said, if he said anything when he came out of the Grove when he was 14. All we know is that the first time he gets around to recording it is in 1832, 12 years later, Two years after the church has been organized, and even in that first handwritten account, he says nothing about two beings appearing to him, and he says only that the message was that his sins were forgiven. Going on with the article, without any question to the contrary, it must be assumed that Joseph Smith, when he went to pray, had an idea that somewhere the divine truth was to be found if he had cunningly thought out a plan, now get this, if he had cunningly thought out a plan, he surely would not have dared to face the religious world with such a story as that he had received a visitation from both the father and the son. Well, ironically, Joseph Fielding Smith knows that in the first account, the 1832 account, he did not say he received a visitation from both the Father and the Son. And so strangely, Joseph Fielding Smith ends up arguing that this actually was a cunning plan on the part of Joseph Smith, even though he knows that that that's what he's arguing, and he knows the evidence that contradicts his argument. Once again, let me read that sentence and see how it compares. When you put yourself in the place of Joseph Fielding Smith, who knew about the 1832 account of the First Vision, that it was hidden in his safe, and as far as he knew, it would never be revealed to the public. Once again, quote, If he had cunningly thought out a plan, that's Joseph Smith. If Joseph Smith had cunningly thought out a plan, he surely would not have dared to face the religious world with such a story as that he had received a visitation from both the father and the son. Going on with the article, from all the teachings he had received, well, we're kind of presuming a lot there, but from all the teachings he had received, that was evidently the furthest thought from his mind. It was too revolutionary and conflicted universally with all of the religious creeds, Catholic and Protestant, in the world. Now get this next line, please, pay close attention here. This is remarkable, honestly, quote, he, Joseph Smith, might have said that the Son of God had appeared to him, but this is something very remote considering the universal belief. Now this is incredible to me and here's why. In the 1832 account, the account that really only Joseph Fielding Smith knows about in his safe, remember? That's exactly what happened. Joseph Smith said that only the Son of God appeared to him. And yet, Joseph Fielding Smith is willing to write, in 1960, he might have said that the Son of God had appeared to him, but this is something very remote, considering the universal belief. Joseph Fielding Smith, why are you saying? that it's very remote when you know that that is actually what Joseph Smith said in his earliest account. Here Joseph Fielding Smith is arguing against the evidence, against the evidence that only he knows and therefore he feels safe in making this argument. He is relying on the three witnesses i.e. the 1835, 38 and 42 accounts of the first vision that say the light was green while completely knowing about the 1832 account, the one witness that said the light was red, and hiding that intentionally and deliberately from his audience in order to make his case. Now the article written by Joseph Fielding Smith in 1960 goes on from that point and addresses other parts of his argument which do not concern us too much here. The amazing thing is that all of this was written by Joseph Fielding Smith in 1960 and published in 1960 while Joseph Fielding Smith actually had the 1832 account in his safe and had already had it there for over three decades. He would not even allow a member of the Presidency of the Seventy to look at it without approval from leaders higher up than Joseph Fielding Smith and then only under absolute condition that a copy of the 1832 account of the first vision not be made and that the contents not be discussed with anyone else. All of the secrecy that Joseph Ealing Smith is going through in this regard is one thing, but then to write an article for the improvement era in 1960, which attempts to prove the first vision account true, based almost exclusively on things that are not proven by the 1832 account and in fact which are contradicted by the 1830 to account that Joseph Fielding Smith has hidden in his safe is astonishing. Even as he is writing this article, Joseph Fielding Smith knows that his argument is undercut by the evidence he has hidden in his safe. From his point of view, it is apparently okay to do this, so long as the members are kept in the dark about the real evidence. And now, here's the really, really funny thing. We know that this was written originally, by Joseph Fielding Smith in 1960. The amazing thing is that this very same article was republished by the LDS Church in the Enzyme magazine in October of 1987, 27 years after the original article was published and 22 years after Paul Chessman was allowed to include the 1832 account of the First Vision in his master's thesis in 1965. There is nothing in the Ensign article from October of 1987, that indicates that this part of Joseph Fielding Smith's argument is undercut by the 1832 account of the first vision. It is treated as if it did not exist, and indeed, as of 1987, the LDS Church was still doing a pretty darn good job of keeping knowledge of the 1832 first vision account from its members. Certainly, they were doing a good enough job of it. To feel no compunction whatsoever about republishing this 1960 article by Joseph Fielding Smith, which depends upon the reader not knowing about the 1832 account of the first vision. So, what am I to make of the strange article from 1960 in which Joseph Fielding Smith argues that the first vision is true specifically because Joseph Smith reported seeing two beings in the vision? And not only that, he says that if Joseph Smith had made the whole thing up, if it was a cunning plan by Joseph Smith, he would have reported seeing only one being in the vision. Well, I had already known that Joseph Fielding Smith had no problem with taking a problematic church document which contradicted later church history on a very important vision, i.e. the first vision, and hiding it in his safe, and restricting access to it. But now it seems to me that this article makes things even worse. It's one thing to hide evidence away and not talk about it, and keep it from the knowledge of the members. That to my mind is bad enough. But then to go out and publicly make an argument that the first vision is true. Because Joseph Smith saw two beings, while all the while knowing you've got the earliest account in your safe, in which he says he saw only one, that is even worse. In the words of Hamlet, it out-herods Herod. And what it leads me to conclude is that when church leaders say things, even respected church leaders say things, make pronouncements, make arguments within a context that supports the dominant narrative of the LDS church, that maybe, just maybe, I have to take what they're saying with a grain of salt. That it is possible that they are arguing against the evidence. And not only that, they may be arguing against evidence that they're not allowing me to know about. A disquieting thought Indeed. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.